thing that strikes me most about a crow being curious is is that they will stand back and look and watch and they will observe a situation and then they will act. Hey, I'm glad you're listening today. This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. This particular show started on my balcony one evening in August. I just moved from only a mile west, but the medium-rise condo is a world away from the little old farmhouse up the road, and I'm still adjusting to the new scenery. It was sunset, or just after, and I noticed what seemed like dozens and then hundreds of birds flying up the Potomac River and landing on the high-rise buildings in Roslyn, just north of me. Hundreds of birds. At first, I thought they were sparrows or starlings because there were so many of them. They landed on the buildings, rimming the skyline, but then they seemed to kind of disappear. I'd been up at dawn most mornings already and heard much more bird song than I had expected. So I knew there were plenty of birds around. I just wasn't sure where. And sure enough, a few days later, I noticed flocks of birds fly back down the river and off into the day. Before they launched, I could hear their low chatter, which seemed to be coming from trees between me and Roslyn. Though they seemed relatively quiet as they took to the air, maybe an occasional caw. I recalled the bird litter, that is, poop and feathers, big feathers and lots of poop, under some trees near the Belvedere in Roslyn. And the evidence was increasingly clear. I was looking at crows. This is the first in what I imagine will be a series of episodes inspired by things I see from my new balcony, a sort of celebration of curiosity about one's surroundings, new or old. What might we learn if we pay just a little more attention to what's right in front of us? What hidden history lies beneath our feet? Whose lives shape the places we call home? And what other life forms do we share this space? It's another take, I suppose, on my dad's old refrain. If you change your point of view, you will see something new. I've lived in Arlington for 35 years, but I keep seeing new things. And I like it that way. Which brings me back to the crows. So now my curiosity was piqued. I started reading all about crows, which turned out to be very intelligent, even curious creatures. They use tools, are self-aware, have a reputation for recognizing faces and keeping score, and be still my heart, understand analogies. And that brought me to John and Colleen Marsliff. John Marsliff is a scientist working on the ecology and behavioral biology of corvids, crows, jays, ravens, and their relatives. He's a professor of wildlife science at the College of the Environment, University of Washington, and the author of six books, including In the Company of Crows and Ravens and Gifts of the Crow, both co-authored with Tony Angel, as well as Welcome to Suburbia and In Search of Meadowlarks. Colleen Marsliff, trained in wildlife biology 
and worked as a research technician studying the wintering and ranging habits of ravens and memory abilities of Clark's nutcrackers. She co-authored Dog Days Raven Nights with John and is an expert in raising and training sled dogs and herding dogs. John and Colleen started researching ravings together over 30 years ago in the rural forests of Maine. And now they study ravens with an international team of researchers in Yellowstone National Park, where their work is revealing the intricacies of ravens' association with wolves, people, and other animals in the park. Somehow, in the midst of all of this, they've also managed to launch Crow Scientist, the real-world bird science app for kids. So welcome, Colleen and John. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks, Lynn. Oh, it's great to have you here. So I know where my interest in crows got started, but how about yours? When did you first get curious about crows? John, let's start with you. Yeah, I got curious because I was studying a relative of the crow, the pinion jay. And as I'm sitting in my little canvas blind watching a nest to see what the parents were doing to provision for their young, a crow showed up and, and ate those young. And I was, oh my gosh. I've been curious about them and ravens uh, as well uh, ever since. And Colleen, what about you? Well, I originally did my research in wildlife science with squirrels and, you know, talk about a curious creature, <laughs> but I ended up working with uh, birds just by chance and <laughs> then by default because of John and then became very enamored with all of the corvids, which are the, the ravens, crows, jays. And you can't, once you start, you can't give them up. They're kind of one of these um, groups of birds that just keeps you continually interested. I, I can see that coming already. So, so is what I was seeing off my balcony typical? Is it seasonal? A little bit of both. It's certainly typical for a lot of crows to commute together and to go to what you were seeing was a communal roosting site to spend the night together. Uh, they often do that mostly in the winter, but it can occur throughout the year. So uh, my, my suspicion is that you were seeing these birds after the breeding season when they're no longer tied to a territory and they can assemble in large groups. We have one close by here that tops over 10,000 birds every night. And they do, just as you said, line up on the roof, the roof lines of the higher buildings, and then they disappear typically into a more vegetated, a little more protected place to spend the night in the trees, or in our case here in, in lower shrubby willows, where they spend the night. And being in a big group, they're, they're safe from predators, uh, safer than if they were on their own. And they are uh, able to perhaps communicate with one another about pressing events, uh, the need of a mate, or follow one another, perhaps to learn of new feeding locations and, and benefit from all the um, benefits of being a social creature. Very interesting. Well, I, you know, in my reading, I have discovered they really are quite communal. They're quite communicative, very cooperative on top of tool use and this sort of thing. So... I've been reading about this remarkable intellect of these birds. Tell us a little more about their capacity for problem solving and analogous thinking, because I think this is a real 
this is a real assumption buster for we humans who like to presume that we may have cornered this market. Not so, huh? No, when it comes to intelligence, the crows and their relatives um, certainly meet or exceed all the hallmarks that we thought of only primates possessing. So a complex language that's that's attuned to um, to the nuance of a given situation. Individuals can not only know what's being said, but who's saying it and where they're saying it from and interpret their and adjust their response to that sort of information. They remember hundreds of individuals, uh, some of the birds, especially the some of the jays that live in large flocks, remember hundreds of individuals. They know how they stand relative to others in their group. So they have what's called transitive inference like we do. If, if you know you're better than, than Joe and Joe's better than, uh, or Joe can beat Bob, you know that you can also beat Bob without having to contest Bob. And, and these birds wow. do that as well. And in terms of memory, whether it's memory of places where they stored their food, like like the nutcrackers Colleen was working with, or whether it's who did what, when, and where, they have great spatial and social memory. And as you mentioned, they some species, one in particular, the New Caledonian crow, is an expert tool maker and user. So it's one of the few species and probably the best non-human species at manufacturing and utilizing tools in a natural setting. So this is actually pretty cool. And for people who haven't been immersing themselves in crow research the way I have recently and you have for 30 years, tell us what those tools actually look like. Well, the New Caledonia crow uh, lives on an island where there are not woodpeckers, and there's a variety of resources available under the bark or in the soil that they can probe and hook out to get uh, basically a, a very rich food source. So they take the leaves of a palm-like uh, plant, a pandanus plant, and they strip off pieces of the, the palm frond so that a hook uh, results in what is left. They use that to hook insects out from underneath things, and they take splinters of wood and shape them so that they can spear uh, objects that are out of their reach. And in the lab, they will even take bits of wire and bend it into hooks to pull a bucket of food up out of a tube or drop stones in the water to raise the level of the water and make the floating food in it available, uh, which our American crows actually can do as well. So they, they use a variety of, of bits of nature to craft tools that extend their reach to get new food. And of course, that, uh, that dropping pebbles into the pitcher, that's an Aesop fable, right? I mean, that's something that we humans have observed crows doing for a long time. We've, we've sort of been on to some of their smarts for a while, if not the depth that we're coming to understand now. Tell me about this analogous thinking, though. First off, just to, to step back a second, I think people were on to the smarts of crows and ravens from day one. Uh, they were a <laughs> challenging competitor for us. They, they molded our religions, our beliefs, our legends, our communication. Uh, they molded an awful lot of what we did as early people and continue to do to this day. I mean, thinking about you know modern movies and the call of a crow that 
shows up in that as an indicator of something bad that's going to happen. So uh, these animals were challenging for us, and we we knew that from from the dawn of our evolution. So how curious are crows, and how do we measure their curiosity? Well, I mean, it's an interesting term. We Scientists don't typically use that term to, to study a crow's behavior. I think we would talk about things like flexibility in their behavior, the ability to change depending on a given um, situation, the ability to learn from the past, the ability to consider what is going on before they act on it. All of those are reflective of a curious nature. And I think, and Colleen can speak to this as well, but I, I think the thing that strikes me most about a crow being curious is is that they will stand back and look and watch and they will observe a situation and then they will act. They're, they're not just moving around helter-skelter. They are very thoughtful in the way they approach a car to beg for food, for example, from somebody. They are cautious in how they approach prey in their environment that they might capture and have to fly up and drop from a certain distance to, to crack open. They even utilize our automobile traffic patterns to crack open nuts and things that they can't crack with their beak or in other ways. So they're watching our environment very closely. They are adapting their behavior to fit best in it. And, and that's you could think of that as a curious behavior. I would just interject here as an example. Our daughter, when she was doing a science fair project, years and years and years ago, we knew that the crows were attracted to McDonald's bags. (laughs) And so she went out to look to see if the crows would, on you know, you put a McDonald's bag on the side of the road near a McDonald's, do the crows come in versus a brown paper bag and then doing it away from a McDonald's where they wouldn't recognize the bag. Well, the birds that were going after the McDonald's bags, of course, it was the close in, the ones closest to the McDonald's, but they had had a curiosity about a paper bag on the side of the road. And they were rewarded with McDonald's fries, maybe somebody had a leftover burger, you know, kids meal, whatever. And so their curiosity led to something that has allowed them to get food from us that would normally, you know, other birds aren't necessarily going to go after and aren't going to feel safe going after. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by scientists John and Carlene Marsliff to talk about curiosity and crows. You know, there's this interesting research that suggests that crows are self-aware, that they sort of know what they know and know what they don't know. And that actually sort of strikes me as kind of foundational to curiosity, that if you know you don't know something and that information might be useful to you, then you might want to go and figure out whether you can get that information. Does that, I mean, that sounds like actually what the crows are doing. I'm you're probably not in a position to answer this, but I found myself thinking, you know, is self-awareness actually foundational to curiosity? What do you what do you think? Well, I think it's certainly being faced with a changing environment and 
shifting problems as a animal mm. to survive to reproduce makes you experiment, uh, makes you test things, as Colleen was saying, and and try weird objects that might or might not be dangerous, might or might not be food. And crows certainly do that. They're testing all the time. I don't, I mean, clearly they know, I don't know what's in that bag, so I'm going to check it out. They probably have an idea, a hypothesis about what's in there, which again is kind of the hallmark of curiosity. You you have something, not just you don't know what it is and you're curious, but you have an idea what it might be and you're curious to see if that's the case. So maybe scientific curiosity is is really more what they're doing. And it could be some observational learning at the same time if other birds are watching. If you see the crows in a parking lot, say, you know, we see it here a lot, where somebody's tossed garbage, and you'll see one or two of them doing the sideways hop towards the food, and then the others are sitting up in the tree or around and just seeing what happens. Is that going to snap at them? Is it going to grab them and take off? And once it's established that it's safe, you see more of them come down to the ground and try and take, you know, that piece of apple or whatever it might be. There's an interesting recent study that showed they have, that they're conscious and perceptually conscious at least, which is very difficult to demonstrate in a non-human animal, right? You can't ask, what are you thinking about? But this experiment tested crows' abilities to remember a signal that they had gotten a few minutes or a few seconds earlier that they had to remember what it was to be able to act appropriately to the next question or next prompt. Kind of like when we play concentration, you have to remember where the three of spades is on the floor if you are holding another three that you want to match up with it. But you don't know you need to remember the three of spades until you draw that other card. And that's it. That's what the crows demonstrated their ability to do. They they remembered the previous knowledge when the appropriate card, or in this case, light was flashed to them. And that demonstrated that they held that uh, information in working memory and they could access it and utilize it in a way that we do as well. And again, it's not so surprising when you consider we've evolved our brains from a common ancestor. But it's remarkable when we start seeing all these different aspects of crow mentality that that really uh, we thought we held to ourselves. So it also sounds as if crows are especially well constructed, adapted to to deal with the evolving human world. I mean, I'm wondering, actually, if it's no accident that these crows should be attracted to this riverside, modest scale urban environment like Roslyn, where they have some of their natural habitat, but they also have a pretty substantial food source if they're sort of brave enough to kind of test the unknown. So were they particularly well adapted for for the human environment? Yeah, I think they're su- supremely adapted for it. And really what you described is kind of the crow mecca. They're able <laughs> to uh, have a, have the best of both worlds, right? Plenty of food, as long as you're not afraid and you're not just absolutely repelled by human activity, there's a lot to be gleaned in our environment. And these birds also like a more edgy, variable environment, one that has open and forested places, for example, or stream sides as well as dry lands. So 
they they like the mixture of habitat types. That's that's their preferred habitat. They're able to extract many resources from many different places, and we're just one of those types of habitat for them. So, so you all are also in the business of helping to cultivate our curiosity about crows and. Crow Scientist is a free app, also ad-free, which I have to say I really appreciated as I was playing around with it. And the app asks kids to observe crows the way a scientist might, and it's designed to support simple science projects. Colleen, tell us more about this. It's so cool. Well, one of the goals that I've always had was to try to get kids outside. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we were approached you know, to work together on this app, I thought, wow, this is a great best of both worlds. These kids love to be on these games, but I still want to get them outside. So how do you bring the two together? And this was a wonderful opportunity to to work with somebody who knows what they're doing in that field. And then we could be the scientific uh, background. And I think that this is a great way for parents to get involved with their kids being outside as well. So like you were talking on your balcony, some of the questions that you had can be answered, or you could go further because we do have some references to further reading, but it gives the kids an opportunity to to actually look at something and quantify it or qualify it, whatever, if it's that, but it's is this what I'm seeing? What I think it's what I'm seeing. Is it, is this a mom and dad? Is this a, just a youngster? So we're hoping that we can get kids involved and not just saying it's a bird. I grew up with a dad who said everything was an LGB. It was a little gray bird. I want a little more for kids. I want them to, to see behavior and, and try to understand behavior. So what are the kinds of things that kids do in the apps? Because they're you have sort of different levels. There's videos. It's really quite content rich. It'll, there's a lot of, there's three levels. We're trying to keep it so that it's simple and then getting more complex. And at each level, you will get a certificate when completed. And that can be, uh, I will be signing as the, as the lead crow scientist, I will be signing the certificates, but not only that, there's some feedback for them. There's, uh, place where the data is collected. So you have your data collected daily. You have it somewhat locational, but you can go back and say, oh, I saw a crow here yesterday, but I don't see that crow here today or vice versa. Or you just over a year, you might say, wow, look at this. I saw a crow a day and different locations. Uh, So they can use this to ask questions then and then look back at where they were what the bird was doing. And of course, a lot of this is seasonal, so you're not going to get nesting, you know, in January, but it, it allows them to to kind of work with it throughout the year. Yeah. Well, I'll, I, you know, I know it's aimed at kids, but I'll tell you, I've learned a lot from it. So thank you. A lot of people are still stuck at home, you know, homeschooling, and they're looking for activities for something for their kids to get outside and still fulfill some of that science education and just getting the kids outside. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm with you there. So before we run out of time, typically at the end of my shows, I ask my guests to make analogies to curiosity with words we randomly pull from a big jar. 
But in response to a Scientific American story about Crow's understanding analogies, an alert listener tweeted at me asking what curiosity analogy a crow might offer. So I'm wondering, based on what you know of crows, what might a crow say curiosity is like? Either one of you? John? <laughs> well, I think I saw that at first. I've been thinking while, while you were talking there. Um, you know, to me, curiosity to a crow is is kind of the their bouncing flight, especially as they are uh, riding a thermal uh, rising air mass or kind of carefree. They have a lot of spare time because they are very efficient at living with us and getting their daily needs. And it's during those times where they might be uh, rising effortlessly in a in a column of warm air or doing barrel rolls and and flying crazily and and uttering all kinds of strange noises. I think that's their expression of of curiosity. They're they're free to to wander and to think and consider things. And and you see that often in the in the late afternoons uh, as these birds are preparing to go to roost and starting to interact with many other crows. And, and I think that's a good way that they show us their curiosity. They're not just going to sit and wait. They're out doing things and, and checking out the environment and, and thinking about it. My feeling about this is when you see a crow bring a gift to a human, you can't help but wonder what is going through the crow's head when they do this. Because if they're going to, in in one case that John was reported to John, a woman got a diamond tennis bracelet that the crow oh brought to the feeder. Now, I'd like to meet that crow because, you know, I'd love to have a diamond tennis bracelet. But Yeah, I'd like to meet that crow too. Yeah, and, and it... It, it makes you realize that there's something going on there and whether they're cure, you know, I could anthropomorphize all day, but it makes you wonder if they are actually curious as to what our reaction is going to be when that gift arrives, because they're not going to eat it, but they bring it to the feeder or they're expecting food back or are they just watching our reaction. I like to think that they're watching to see what happens because it's unusual. I love it. Well, you and the crows just knocked this analogy thing right out of the park. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for joining me today. This was this was really fun. Well, thank you for having us. Absolutely. Our pleasure. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. You can find this and all my previous shows and links to all the research we've been talking about on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on social media at Choose to be Curious. Many thanks to John and Carlene Marsliff. Check out that Crows Scientist app, links on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is The Cast and Favor by Bayou Birds via Blue Dot Sessions. Look around. Let me know what you see crows up to. I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. The way I look at the crows and humans is we have sort of a reciprocal curiosity. At least I do, and I believe John does, and I think you've joined the bandwagon on that as well. <laughs>